0: That's where your mission dollars is going. Let justice roll down. This morning I want to talk to you about the theme of justice. In the last couple of weeks, we have looked at what it means to be followers of Christ. We've spent 30 weeks in our belief series on studying what it means to think and act and be to become like Jesus. In the last couple of weeks, as we've summarized that and transitioned a little bit, ...into our topic for today. We've looked uh, last week at Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19.18... ...about loving God and loving our neighbor. And this fits directly with that. To love God and to love your neighbor means... ...that you will live out the call and commands of God in your life. And the idea of justice is a huge part of that. The terms and ideas for justice occur more than a thousand times... ...throughout the pages of Scripture our modern way of thinking the idea of justice is often relegated to a courtroom and has to do with following the law or with fairness but in the scriptures in the biblical scriptures it is much much larger than that concept we often think of the idea of proverbs 11 verse 1 which says false balance is an abomination to the lord but a just weight is his delight and that's what we think of fairness balancing the scales and yes that has to do with justice in the scriptures. But, biblical terminology has justice being much more closely related to the idea of righteousness and faithfulness. The idea of God's covenant love and that shows itself to those who are in need and without apparent hope. You can see this, for instance, in Proverbs 31, verse number 8. It says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. In other words, speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Those who who are without a voice. They may literally be without a voice, or they may simply be the oppressed, the people who do not have the the wherewithal or the power or the status to speak up for their case. It is the role and the right and the responsibility of those who have that wherewithal to speak up for them. In Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8... We read, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. So yes, there is an element of fairness. Although, I'm not sure if I would translate that as fairness in that verse. But either way, the point of this verse is bigger than that. The point of this verse is, is that God is a righteous and just king who rules and judges how many of the nations? All of the nations. There is no nation, there is no people, there is no place that escapes his eyes. When you read in the scripture about the the spirit and the seven eyes, what, what that is talking about is that God sees everything. He's everywhere. You cannot hide from God in the book of kings we read stories of elijah the prophet and some others and in, in one place in second kings chapter six there's a story and it talks about how the king even when he goes into his bedroom his most secret place what he says there is not outside the scope of god knowing and so god sees he hears everything god is a righteous and a just king who rules and judges all the nations and as creator there is none more powerful than he There's no square inch of the universe exempt from his justice. And yes, he'll set the scales proper, but he'll do more than that. In Psalm 146, verse 6 and 7, we read, The maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, he remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry, the Lord frees prisoners. And I want us to look at that part that's up on the screen for just a moment. This is, in particular, the, the part we're going to focus on today. That He executes justice for the exploited. He gives food to the hungry. He frees the prisoner. God is about justice. God is about coming in and setting those people free who are in bondage. Yes, spiritually, but also in all sorts of physical manners. Not only does God execute justice over the whole earth, but God also brings justice to those who have no one to help them. And that's what you need to understand is a common theme in this scope that we're looking at of bringing justice. It's those who don't have anyone to help them. God comes in. He hears the cry of the afflicted. He hears the cry of the oppressed. His people called out to him in slavery in Egypt, and he heard their cry. Who was going to help them? They were slaves. They needed someone from outside their situation to come in and help them, to free them physically. And that's what he did. He sent Moses. He freed them. The greatest event of all historical time, the Exodus. They were freed from physical slavery. Yes, they were brought into a new relationship. They became a nation of kings and priests. They were a nation that were God's chosen people, his children. They were supposed to enter into a new spiritual covenant with God, but they were freed physically, from physical slavery, from physical bricks and whips, which, as you'll find out shortly, still goes on today. This theme is all throughout the pages of Scripture. The Exodus event where over 2 million people, God's people, were freed. God demonstrated his ability to judge all the nations, including Egypt. How did he do this? Through the ten plagues. We all often realize that the ten plagues was a judgment on Egypt. Each of those ten plagues was a judgment against one or more of the gods of Egypt, that they were impotent and they were powerless. The Egyptians worshipped the god of the Nile River, and God turned it into blood. He killed it, basically. What he was saying was, your god is no god. They worshipped the frog god. They worshipped all these different gods. And God was pronouncing judgment upon their gods. And showing that he, the creator of the universe, was the only true god. He decimated this world power and freed the powerless. This is also done in connection with the steadfast love or the covenant faithfulness. You saw that phrase or something close to it on the screen a minute ago. To the promises that he had made to Abraham and others. God had promised Abraham... That he would make a nation out of him. And so he was fulfilling his promise at the same time that he was judging the nations. That's something critical that you need to understand in the scriptures. Salvation often comes through judgment. God is judging one thing and at the same time he's freeing another. He's providing salvation in the midst of this judgment. James Hamilton has an entire book written on that. (coughs) I might have just got the author wrong. Anyways. it's a good book, Salvation Through Judgment. So God's justice sets things right. It rightens wrongs and it pulls the rug out from under the perpetrators of these wrongs. So in this sense, justice is connected with the idea of shalom, which we've talked about in the past, peace and wholeness, putting things in proper place where they're supposed to be. And so let justice roll down. Let it roll down. On a large scale, God's justice frees people spiritually from their bondage. Having no way out, we're stuck. Until who shows up? God. And so God shows up and helps us. In the same way that our spiritual freedom works, God works this way in the physical realm as well. And though this may shock you, this is what he expects of you and I. So today as we look at this idea of justice and letting justice roll down and freely flow from you and I... As it flows from God himself, as God frees us spiritually, and even physically sometimes, he expects us to then go free others, spiritually and physically. The title of the message, Let Justice Roll Down, actually comes directly from Amos 5.2, which reads, Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream in Amos 5, 23 and 24. In this passage, Amos is confronting the people with the fact that God is still not happy with them because they're bringing sacrifices to him, but they're not living a justice or a just-oriented life he says let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream and so the actions of justice are supposed to be flowing through and out of you like a stream not a stream that dries up like an ever-flowing stream like an overwhelming stream do you see how justice and righteousness right living are connected God expects that we live out this way. We'll see in a little while that Christ demonstrates this as well. What is the Amos is getting at? He says, no sacrifices in the wilderness in this passage. If you go back and look at uh, Amos chapter 5, um, it's a really interesting book, the prophet Amos. And like most of the other prophets, he's chastising God's people, the Israelites, for how they're living. That they're not living a just life. That they're not living faithfully to God. That they're living an idolatrous lifestyle. And he says... That um, in the wilderness, the, the people did not offer sacrifices. Well, why is that? Well, probably because there's not a lot of animals in the wilderness. Probably because they didn't bring a whole bunch with them out of Egypt. Although, they did bring a bunch of stuff. And so, what, what is it that God is saying? Most likely, all right. it's a little hard to understand that passage in, in Amos 5. But most likely what's going on is, is God is saying... Listen, when you were in the wilderness, it wasn't your sacrifices that I wanted or that pleased me, because you didn't even have any really to give. What was it that pleased me? It was your obedience and your faithfulness. If you know the story of the wilderness at all, for 40 years they wandered because of their unfaithfulness. And so God is reminding them there's no sacrifices there. And so we jump forward hundreds of years to the book of Amos, and Amos is saying, listen, yeah, you bring your sacrifices every day. Yeah, you come to church every Sunday. Good job. Pack yourself on the back. And God says, I don't care. What? Yeah, I don't care. Because your life is a wreck. You treat people unjustly. You don't care about what I care about. You think that just because you brought your sacrifices, you think just because you showed up to Bible study in church that that's good enough. And it's not. Jesus told the Pharisees the same thing. He said, yeah, you bring all your, your tithes, okay? You bring your money in, okay? You even tithe. You you give us a, a, a 10% on the smallest spices from your garden. But you don't give a rip about the homeless guy sitting on the corner. And so, I don't care about your tithes. Yes, you should bring your tithes and offerings, but you should care even more so about the guy sitting there that needs help. Bring him freedom. Yes? Bring the light of the gospel to the people. Bring the truth. Sacrifices now are not going to replace the need for loving obedience. King Saul had the same problem. And from that, we have a very well-known passage that God is not most concerned with sacrifices, but with obedience. So you see, you've got the same thing in the wilderness as you have in King Saul's life. And Amos draws upon all this imagery from his observation of, of the streams in the side. See, the people there, they were different than you and me. You don't have a stream flowing out in your backyard. Although at the apartments you do have a lake. That has a a fountain in the middle of it. All right? That's what it's supposed to be like. Your justice keeps going, like the fountain. The fountain shuts off, and what happens? No more water spraying up in the air, right? So Amos is looking and he's seeing, and the stream, and it overflows. And that's what it's supposed to be like. And so he uses that, and that's where we get this verse from. Biblical justice actively pursues the welfare of the community and the individuals in it. It's the responsibility of every member of the group. Not merely the people who are judges. It's not just the people in the court responsible for having justice in Orlando. It's you. It's you and I. Yeah, even if you're in elementary school, it's you. Who stands up to the bully on the playground? Oh, you just let it go? Who helps the kid in your school that everybody knows doesn't have whatever? Clothes, food, whatever. You name it. It doesn't matter what it is. What do you do? You know about it. What do you do about it? The responsibility of a follower of God is that we live that out, to love God and love your neighbor. We talked about this last week in the Good Samaritan. That's why this this ties in so closely. We're doing this message today because today is Freedom Sunday. It's sponsored by the International Justice Mission, IJM.org. So around the world today, or at least around the country, I guess, there's hundreds of churches that are doing a Freedom Sunday, focusing on this idea of justice. Now, for us, it just happens to fit very well with what we talked about last week. It's almost a part two. What does it mean to love your neighbor? They could be in your school, or they could be across the country, or in another country. And we're going to talk about all of that today. Job got this in Job chapter 29. If you know anything about Job, you know that he was a very wealthy man. He was a righteous man. He followed after God. And in the book of Job, his life falls apart. Okay? He loses pretty much everything except his wife. And she's not much help at the point because she tells him to just curse God and die. That's really not the advice you give somebody when their whole life's falling apart. All right? So Job, though, in the midst of all this, he has these friends that come up alongside him. And at first they're quiet, but then they start talking, and that's when they messed up. They should have just kept their mouths shut. So they start telling him that he must be a sinner. Otherwise he would not be going through this suffering. And they're all wrong. That's not why he's going through it. He's going through it because of something that's going on with God and Satan. And God's allowing this to demonstrate that Job is very righteous and that Job does not serve God just because God blesses him. You see, you have people today that think the same thing. All right? Serve God and he'll bless you. Well, serve God and he might kill you. What? Yeah, go check the apostles. Serve God and you might die. Serve God and you might get cancer. How does that help? Well, I don't know. Maybe you're going to be a shining example of Christ's likeness through your cancer. And God's going to use that to his glory. I, I don't know how all this works out. All I know is what we are told in the scripture is... Job is in the midst of this situation. And here's what he says. He says in Job 29, from 7 to 17, he says, When I went out to the city gate and I took my seat in the town square, which that's where they did all the court stuff, okay? The young men saw me and they withdrew, while the older men stood to their feet. Why? Because of respect. City officials stopped talking and covered their mouths with their hands. Why? Job is very well respected. The noblemen's voices were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roofs of their mouths. When they heard me, they blessed me. When they saw me, they spoke well of me. For, and here's why, this is why Job had such a good reputation. For I rescued the poor man who cried out for help. Did he just leave him there? He helped him. And he rescued the fatherless child who had no one to support him. An orphan. No one to help. What did he do? He rescued him. He took him in. He cared for him. He found a way for him to be sustained in life. The dying man blessed me and I made the widow's heart rejoice. Why is her heart rejoicing? Because he's helping her. I clothed myself in righteousness and it enveloped me. What's he mean here? He's meaning that what he just told you was living righteously. What word is in righteously? Right. This is right living he clothed himself in in belts. I mean, that means he surrounded himself. That means this is how he lived his life. His life was like this on a regular basis. It wasn't Thanksgiving time, let's go serve the poor people at the shelter. It wasn't Christmas time, we gotta go buy toys for the poor. It was this is what Job did all year long. This is how he lived his life. Now don't get me wrong, you can go to the shelter at Thanksgiving and you can buy toys if you want for the poor. But A a once-a-year deal is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifestyle. My just decisions were like a robe and a turban. They're his clothes. You put your clothes on twice a year or every day? Every day. This is how Job lived every day. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He helped them. I was a father to the needy, and I examined the case of the stranger. I shattered the fangs of the unjust. That means he stood up to the bullies, and he snatched the prey from their teeth. So the guy's in the middle of being a bully, and he goes and he rescues that poor little sheep lamb from that wolf. Not a real sheep, a person. Not a real wolf, a cruel man. Pure and undefiled religion, James 1.27 tells us, is what? To look after orphans and widows in the distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. You can just leave it there for a minute. Okay? Job demonstrates this and lives it out. James in the New Testament says, this is what your life is supposed to be like. I don't know if you caught in the middle of the passage on Job in verse 14, but I said, he clothed himself in righteousness, living rightly, in right relationship with God, means taking care of the needy, the oppressed, the hurting, etc. James says the same thing. Job is potentially the oldest book in the Bible. James is in the New Testament. We've already talked about Exodus in the wilderness. The whole Bible... Deals with this concept, the whole thing. Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln—they all understood it too. <clears throat> Go to the next slide, please. Next one. And Luke. And Luke, Jesus speaks out. And as he's there in the temple, they hand him the scroll. And on that scroll <clears throat> are the words of Isaiah 61. All right, So you've got to put this in context. This is where the Bible can get a little confusing for you. All right, So Luke records what happened one day in Jesus' life. So Luke is one scripture, right? And he's recording what happened in Jesus' life. But on that day that he's talking about... Jesus is actually reading from Isaiah, a different scripture, okay? So, in the book of Isaiah, just like in Amos, just like in most of the prophets, God's people are being corrected. And God offers both judgment and hope. The hope being ultimately through Jesus. And in this passage, look what happens. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So what's he going to send to the poor? Good news. What is good news to the poor? Get money. That's good, right? Now, there is is the aspect where poor often means poor in spirit, okay? But poor also means physically poor, right? So to a poor person, all right, money, food, etc. Now, to a spiritually poor person, it would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation, right? He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed. Now, all of these things, yes, these are spiritual analogies, but it's more than that. They're physical realities. Not just spiritual analogies. Physical realities. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So Jesus shows up and says, I am here to bring good news to the poor, to set the captive free, to let the blind guy see and the lame guy walk. And let me ask you something. If you know anything about the Gospels, What does Jesus do in his ministry? Yes, he brings salvation. Yes, he tells people to repent and believe in him. He is Jesus. He is God. He's going to die on the cross for their sins. But what else does he do all through the Gospels as he proclaims the kingdom? He heals. He heals. He he feeds. He sets people free from their bondages. All the things you just read in Isaiah, they are not just spiritual analogies. They are physical realities that God sets people free from. That is what Jesus came preaching in the kingdom. He said, I preach the kingdom of God. Yes, repent. Who was he harshest to? The people that were blind? The people that were poor? The people that were lame? No. He was harshest to the people that were rich. Who did he tell to give everything to? And the man went away sad. The rich man. The rich man. Why did he go away sad? Because he didn't want to give up his stuff. Who did he verbally slam in the face? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Who were the ones that were behind him getting put to death on the cross? The poor people? The blind people? The lame people? No. The rich people? The powerful people? The political people? The very people that are tasked in Scripture with helping the poor, the blind, the maimed, the oppressed are the ones that crucified Jesus. I don't think it's that much different today. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That means... That if somebody is bullying somebody at recess and you're not part of it, you're supposed to be part of it. Because you are part of it because it's happening there and you're there. It also means if it's happening across the country or across the world in Congo or Africa, Sudan or wherever, it matters to us also. Abraham Lincoln said those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves and under a just God cannot long retain it. What he is saying is if you don't stand up for the people that don't have a voice eventually you're going to have your own problems because God's not going to bless that we've already seen from scripture that God commands us to stand up for them this morning as part of our focus on this idea of justice I want to help you understand the story of a young man I'm going to show you a video in just a moment about this young man, Kumar. Kumar had a, a rough life. His his young life um, was, was tragic in the sense that he lost his parents at a young age. He then went to live for a little while with his uncle. And then through a series of events, he was there for a little less than two years probably, um, he ended up being kind of sold as collateral for a debt to a man that owned a kiln. That's where they make bricks. And his life from then forward was spent all day long making bricks. Watch this video about Kumar's life.
1: 14 18 hour days with very little sleep no freedom dignity is taken away from them and and that's something nobody should have to endure we had a number of years ago two of the mountain laborers escaped from a facility and they were tracked down by the owners of the facility and and brought back and as a punishment for what they had done their hands were chopped off.
2: We would go to the government officers and we'd say, sir, there's a bonded labor case. And almost always the response was, there is no bonded labor in my area. What are you talking? 30?
1: Yeah, yeah, very Rajira, There's a girl who's very afraid. Almost unable to walk. This is Kumar. He was abandoned by his mother, and his father was suddenly killed, orphaned and alone. He was accountable for his parents' debts, and at just seven years old, he was forced into slavery. Kumar remembers a day where he was so ill he couldn't get out of bed. Immediately, his owner came looking for
2: him. Yeah.
1: Kumar was trapped by debt and a slave owner who beat him continuously. He, like so many, had no remaining hope for a way out.
0: How old was Kumar when he began working at the brick kiln factory? Seven years old. I want you to imagine that a seven years old... You begin working 14, 16 plus hours a day making bricks. No school, no toys and playing bricks. When you're done, you're so tired, you eat whatever little food they might give you and you sleep. When you get up the next day, you do the same thing all day long. You do this day after day, not five days or six days. You do this seven days a week, all day, every day. That was Kumar's life from the time he was seven years old his mother abandoned him his father died his uncle took him in and then there was a family debt that had to be paid some man offered to pay the debt and in exchange Kumar, 7 years old, works in the brick factory you'll have to wait and see Nelson Mandela said <clears throat> is that out of order? Don't out it. Work. My my bad. <clears throat> we'll get to Nelson Mandela in a minute. According to the Walk Free Foundation, there's over 45 million people in the world who live as slaves. Should be the slavery facts. Next one. 45 million people in the world who live as slaves. To so put this into perspective, 45 million is greater population than 158 countries in the world. Next slide. If <clears throat> that's 158 countries, you added up all of their people, Okay, it would still not be as many as 45 million. 45 million is more slaves than were trafficked during the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. Next slide. During those years of slave trade, they did not trade as many slaves... Is what there are currently today, still in slavery. Now, that slave trade was horrific. It was horrendous. And at the end of our time today, we will come back to that in a sense, because we will talk for a moment this morning about uh, John Newton and what God did to a man that was in the middle of the slave trade that trafficked over 20,000 slaves himself. One man over 20,000 slaves that he traded and sold. We'll tell you that story in a little bit. But the point is that today there's still more slaves than then. 45 million people enslaved today is more than at any other time in history. Next slide. Nelson Mandela has said, As long as poverty, injustice, and gross inequality persist in our world, none of us can truly rest. And Brian Stevenson, who you don't know who he is probably, but he has said the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. One of the things that has occurred over the years is as people have studied the idea of justice, and particularly the justice mission, Institute for um, International Justice Mission, okay, imj.org, in the back, they began... Many years ago, Gary Hagan, their president, I was first introduced to them uh, about 15 years ago when I was youth pastoring and began supporting them. They have studied this issue uh, as well and trying to figure out what is it underlying all of this. And one of the key things that they have come to realize is this issue of poverty. So I want to talk about poverty for a minute as it's related to justice. Nearly half of the world's population, more than three billion people, live on less than 250 a day. More than 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty, which is less than 125 a day. One billion children worldwide are in poverty. According to UNICEF, 22,000 or more children die each day due to poverty. How many kids die every day? More than 22,000. That number fluctuates a little bit depending on the year, between 22, 26. Depends, I've heard different quotes. The point is, 20-some-odd thousand are dying every day. That means today. That means yesterday. More than 750 million people lack adequate access to clean drinking water. They have no, they have no clean water to drink. So, when you complain about the water at Poppy Park and the water fountain... I want you to remember that there are 750 million people that don't have any adequate clean drinking water. And so what they often die from is bad water. Diarrhea caused by inadequate drinking water. Sanitation and hand hygiene kills 842,000 people every year. So bad water, not clean water leads to diarrhea, leads to death for 842,000 people every year, about 2,300 people each day. So today, 2,300 people will die because they don't have any clean water and they'll get some nasty diarrhea that kills them. In 2011, 165 million children under the age of five were stunted, reduced growth, due to chronic malnutrition. Preventable diseases like diarrhea and pneumonia take the lives of 2 million children a year who are too poor to afford proper treatment. One-fourth of all humanity live without electricity. That's 1.6 billion people, no electricity. 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. It's estimated that it would take $60 billion a year to end extreme global poverty. That's less, get this, that's less than 25% a quarter of the income of the top 100 richest billionaires. Okay. Now, I'm not telling anybody what to do. This is just for analogy and perspective. If you took the top richest people, 100 of them, and they took 25% of their money, they could end extreme global poverty. 100 people could. The poor are hungry, and their hunger traps them into poverty. Now, I realize that's a little bit much, all those stats, so let me put this into a visual perspective for you. If the world, okay, the world is how many people? Seven and a half billion, right? If we, if we boil it all down to a village of 100 people, watch this video. This is what the world would look like if it was 100 people in a village. perspective a little bit uh, that's the point Acts 17 says that that god has has put us where we are and so for whatever reason that you're in america i don't think it's accidental i don't think it's accidental that we have the resources we have i think the question is simply this what do we do with what we've been given you've been blessed to be a blessing is the scriptural principle Abraham was blessed by God so that through Abraham would flow the blessings of God and that they would go to every nation of the world. God specifically told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 and following, and he reiterated it multiple other times that through Abraham he would bless the entire world. Now we know that ultimately spiritually that comes through Jesus Christ as Jesus is the descendant through that offspring and brings salvation to the world. But it's not only that aspect. As we've already shown, and as if you read the Gospels, it's very clear that Jesus made this physical aspect, this physical reality that we're talking about, part of what he did as well. So imagine what you see on the screen is the headline on the newspaper when you got up this morning 100 jetliners crashed, 26,500 dead. What would be your response? What's your reaction? if that's what it said on the front page of the newspaper this morning. What would be your response if when you got up tomorrow morning the newspaper said the same thing again? And then the next day it said the same thing again. And the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Because here's the deal. You don't ever see that on the front page of the newspaper. But that is what's happening every day. Except they're not jetliners. They're just people that don't have food. That many. I told you the number is somewhere twenty-two to 26,000 people, right? So, 26,500 people. The sad truth. It's not a jetliner. That's how many died yesterday. That's how many children will die today. Not even adults, children. Every day, because they lack The necessary things to live. Does God care? You see, here's what people say sometimes. Some critical people, some atheists, some others, whoever. Different people say, well, if God's God, then why does he let that happen? Listen, is God the one causing 26,500 people to die because they don't have a cup of rice today? You know what it costs for a cup of rice quarter. Do you have a quarter? Yeah. Well, you can keep someone alive today. If you go to the hunger site, the hunger site you can click. And actually, you don't even have to give them a quarter. You just click, and someone else pays the quarter. It gives the kid a cup of rice. No joke. That's how it works. Hungersite.org, I think. I used to click all the time. I haven't in a long time. So, that may... You say, well, let's drop that. Instead of 26,500, oh, but Kevin, it's only 26,499 if I give a quarter. Well, let me ask you something. Do you think that one that didn't just die cares? It's like that old story about the, the little boy on the seashore, and he's picking up all these starfish that are all over the beach, and he's throwing them back in the ocean. Some old man comes up alongside and says, What are you doing? He's like, I'm throwing them back, I'm giving them life. And he just looks, and and the whole seashore is just scattered with them. He's like, there's no way that you can get all of them back in there. He said, it doesn't matter. And as he throws another one, he said, well, it mattered to that one. See? That's the whole point. You yourself cannot fix the problem for all seven billion people in the world that have a problem. But you yourself can fix the problem for one. And if every one of us that has the extra quarter, would take care of one. You know what would happen? Those 26,500 would be taken care of. Because I don't know if you noticed on the video with the village as 100, but all the overweight people offset the people without any food and are malnourished and don't have any food. So, see, we got the resources. The problem is how they're distributed and who uses them. George Bernard Shaw is an atheist. Here's what he said. He said, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. This guy's not a Christian. He's not a believer at all. He's an atheist. He does not believe in God. And here's what he says. He says that to be inhuman, the worst thing you could do is not care. So what I'm trying to do right now is to get your attention to get you to care. Now, the truth of the matter is, I can show you all this, and that's not necessarily going to make you care. God's got to change your heart. You've got to pray. I've prayed it hundreds and hundreds of times. God, help me see people the way you see them. Break my heart for people the way that your heart is broken for them. Let me show you this video clip. World hunger. A billion for a billion. See what we can do. So it just happened in the last 60 seconds. So we can keep the status quo going. We can keep doing the same thing, or we can do something about it. Ralph Winter is a missiologist, a guy that has studied, worked in, and written on missions extensively. He said, Obedience to the Great Commission has more consistently been poisoned by affluence, that's wealth, than by anything else. What's he saying? He's saying when people get enough money, and they can live pretty much without others' help, it has done more to harm the gospel than anything else. So let me ask you, what's the richest country in the world? America. America. Which country is known as a Christian nation? Egypt. America. America. So the wealthiest country... Known as a Christian nation. I don't care whether we are or not. That's just what we're known as. And what do we do with our wealth? (laughs)
2: 93%
0: of the people in the world don't own a car. 93%. So if your family has a car, you're in the top what percent? Top 7%. 93 don't have one, so if you got a car, you're in the top 7%. And then some of us have more than one. Most families have more than one. So, just think about it. If your income is more than $25,000, if your family makes more than $25,000, you are in the wealthiest top 10%. That means 90% of the world is more poor than you. Now... If, you, if your family makes more than $50,000, okay, then you make more money than 99% of the world. Which means if your family makes more than 50000 you are in the top 1% richest people in the world. 50000 is not very much in America, actually. So that means that most American families, most middle-class American families, are in the top 1% of the world. So when we say we're not rich, we lie. Or we're ignorant. Take your pick. Now, the truth is, I don't consider Melissa and I to be rich, but that's because I compare myself to other Americans. Compared to other Americans, maybe I'm not. We do okay. The bills are paid. We have a house, right? But compared to the rest of the world, I am the one percenter. So you don't have to be a Bill Gates to be a one percenter. No. That's it. The internet. So where are you at? The average income for a person... In America, an adult makes at least normally thirty thousand dollars a year. So, even if you only made thirty, if you got two parents working, that would give you sixty. That would put you over fifty. Most people, most adults that probably work in around here or whatever, if they have a full-time job, they're probably making more than thirty thousand. So, they're quickly pushing the fifty number. American Christians. Have a combined total, get this, if you took all the American church-going Christians and added their money together, $5.2 trillion, that's $5,000 billion, approximately 1% of that would take the poorest $1 billion out of poverty. So if all the American Christians would give 1% of their amount, their money, the bottom poorest people in the world would no longer have to die because they need a cup of food. American Christians who make up 5% of the church worldwide control 50% of Christian wealth. Only about 5% of American households give even 10% of their money to God's work. They don't even tithe. We spend it on ourselves. We don't give it to God. We spend it on ourselves. If you look at only the born-again Christians, they actually give – or it's 9% give a tithe. So here's the deal. Christians in America are stingy and selfish. We say we love God and we're liars. And so what we read in the prophets, when Amos 4.1 says you're a bunch of fat cows, that's us. We really don't give nearly what we pretend to give or what people think we give. Average giving in 2005 was 2.6%. 2.58 really. Do you know something? That is less than what was given during the Great Depression in 1933. They gave 3.3%. For Christian families making less than 20000 a year, get this, Christian families that make less than 20000 a year, 8% of them gave at least 10%. So 8% gave at least, they were tithing. They were giving more money, they only made 20 grand, and they were make, giving more money to God and His work than the people making 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 500,000. They were giving more percent wise. What does that mean? It means that poor people give more to God's work percent wise than rich people do. So we go back to the quote from Ralph Winter, and what did he say? The obedience to great commission, what's the greatest obstacle? Wealth. That's why David prayed, God, don't make me too poor that I steal bread and break your commands, and don't make me too rich that I forget you and sin in that way. Amos 4.1 that I just referenced earlier, look at what it says. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan. If you look at a different translation, maybe it was the NLT, it says, you fat cows of Bashan. That's what he's saying. Okay? He says, look at you who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. What, What is this? These are wealthy, rich women who are doing what with their money? They're oppressing the poor. They're not using their money to help the poor. They're hurting the poor. And they say to their husbands, hey, come bring me a drink. Are they taking care of what God wants done? No. no. It's the selfish behavior that enabled these women to maintain their high social status. <clears throat> they exploited people. I don't know that we're much different. So, what happened to <clears throat> Kumar? Remember Kumar in the video? Here you go, Stanley. See what happens.
1: ijm discovered the horrific conditions in the brick factory where kumar and others were being forced to work against their will And, based on their undercover video evidence, local government authorities and police came alongside IJM to conduct a rescue operation. The more and more we are doing these rescues, people are getting aware that people are being abused. There is bonded labor. There is trafficking. Also, the law is going to take its course as well as perpetrators go behind. When the team arrived in the morning and entered the Brick Factory, 15 men, women, and children were rescued and given their freedom back. Then, they were each given a certificate to prove that they no longer owe any debts to their former owner. And one was for Kumar. After being rescued, IJM placed Kumar in their aftercare program to heal. You'd ask him a question anytime, no matter what, and he'd say, The one thing I want to do, sir, is I want to study. He was clear about that. And then, they enrolled him in school for the first time. Today, he is studying to be a social worker to help those still suffering like he did.
2: And what we do at IJM is we go look for that lost sheep, that girl that's being abused, that widow who's been run out of her home. And we will search for her until we find her that's how our father has loved us that's how we are called to love others not to search for them until we've satisfied ourselves not to search for them until it gets really hard but to go after them until we find them to be relentless in our love
0: Person that sent the money that paid for the undercover investigators, the lawyers, and the police that freed him. That's what being a partner with IJM is all about. For as little as $24 a month, you could be what they call a freedom partner. You can sign up online. I'll show you the information in a minute. IJM.org slash uh, I think FP or something. It'll be on the screen in a minute. Um, that $24 isn't much. I mean, what's $24, right? But that $24 every single month adds up and helps as many, many people give that to do that work. And this month, actually, if anybody signs up this month, it's actually being doubled for the next year. So your 24 becomes 48 So I've been supporting them. I'm a Freedom Partner have been for years, and um, we might double ours or something. I'll talk with Melissa later. But Stanley, what was your question? Yeah, it's just a weird question. What the white think on between? Them? Has to do with their culture and their religious system. So IJM is a Christian-based organization started by Gary Hagen, and they are the largest. They're not the only organization fighting slavery. There are organizations right here in Orlando. Okay. Which I encourage partnership and, and support of as well. There's human trafficking that goes on in Orlando, people. There are people being sold in sex tra- se- uh, sex slavery here in Orlando. Okay. But IJM is the largest international and has been doing this a very very long time, and so they they eighteen. no, and they partner with. Law enforcement agencies, okay. What they do not do, okay, there's different movies that have been out. I've seen some of them. If you've seen any of the Taken movies, you know that this is a theme in the Taken movies. Um, What they do not do is they do not pay to release slaves. Because what that does is it gives the owners the money. And what do they keep doing? Exactly. So it takes longer. But they work with investigators, undercover agents, and police. And once they get the evidence, they put the pressure on the police and the politicians, even in corrupt societies, to pressure them into releasing. Now, this story ended up not just with Kumar's release, but with 15 others. Right? Now, that might not seem like a lot, but again, that one starfish that makes it back into the ocean, it means the whole world to them. So let me give you a little bit of information about IJM. <coughs> Just roll through some of these slides. Go to the next one. Okay, to become a Freedom Partner, you go to IJM.org FP, Freedom Partner. Okay, you sign up. If you sign up this month, it is being doubled um, for, I believe it is, the next year. So you give $24 a month, and someone else is giving another 24 in your name with you, etc. Um, <coughs> go to the next one. Okay, today, they're helping to protect more than 21 million people from violence around the world. Okay, they're not just in one place. They're all over. <clears throat> They've rescued thousands, and they protect millions, proving that justice for the poor is possible. So if you think, oh, but I don't know how to do what Jesus says, or I don't think you can do that today. Oh, you can, and it's being done every single day. You just have to get in on it. They're the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. Over 1,100 convictions against slave owners, rapists, and other criminals have occurred through their work. They have over 37,000 officers and officials they've trained since 2012. They're in 20 communities um, around the world currently, and they want to grow that. Um, I don't know if you know the movie um, Amazing Grace about the life of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce spent over 20 years in British Parliament to get slavery ended. He fought for 20 years and would not give up. If you've never seen the movie Amazing Grace, you should go watch it. Okay? Or you can all come to my house and we can watch it together. So what it takes is men that are courageous to stand up, and women, to stand up and to believe what God says. That every person is made in the image of God. Do you want to work 17 hours a day making bricks at 7 years old? Well, then if you believe the scriptures and you love God and you love your neighbor, then you don't want some other 7-year-old doing that either. So you can do something about it. And that's what we have to do. Do you want to be bullied on the playground at school? No. Then... You shouldn't want some other kid to be either. So if it happens, you should stand up. Make your voice known. That's a repeated refrain in the book of Isaiah. If you see injustice, stand up and make your voice known. Do you want to be homeless on the street? No. Then you shouldn't want someone else to be either. Now, I don't have all the solutions to homelessness in America. We have an epidemic. Orlando... Has more homeless people than any city in the country. For real. Orlando is also have a, has a reputation for being the most cruel to homeless people in America. So, we have a huge concern and issue about what to do. The politicians argue about it all day long, but here's the deal this is why Kirkland Community Church supports Word on the Street Ministries and my pastor friend Skip Fangfish. Because I don't know of anybody else who seven days a week is on the streets with homeless people bringing them food and Jesus. That's what he does. He brings them food and Jesus. They call him at all hours of the night, suicidal, people getting killed, raped, hurt, stabbed, put in prison. He's been to more funerals than he can recount to you over the past couple of years since he's been involved in the homeless ministry. And so that's why we support him every single month. Okay. God cares about them. If you can't go yourself, you can at least send some money, right? Now we have homeless people around here. We need to figure out how we can help them and what to do. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna close out, but I want to show you one more video of, um, from IJM called "Until All Are Free." And um, then I'll close us in prayer, and then we'll do our table talk time, which will involve um, helping you understand a little bit more about. John Newton, Amazing Grace, a short video, and we will end with Amazing Grace from there before we have lunch. So play that video.
2: We are slavery's end. fearlessly in the name of justice because we believe in a better world and a God who moves us to make it so we are the church beyond the building or a day of the week relentlessly defending freedom not for some distant future but for today so that this may be the last generation to be owned, sold, or ignored in their suffering. And though we may be free, we are tied to those still held in bondage. And we will not go away until lives, communities, and nations are transformed, until all countries protect all of their citizens. So, each day we rise again, knowing we are slavery's end, and we will never be free.
0: Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in thanksgiving that you have set us free spiritually, Father. I pray if there's anyone here today who has not had their sins forgiven, they would realize that their freedom comes to Jesus Christ. That he paid their penalty, he died on the cross, but then in his power he conquered death and sin by rising from the grave. That if they would trust him, asking him to forgive them of their sins, that Jesus, you would do exactly that. You give them new life, eternal life, salvation, and a new family in God the Father. But Father, we don't stop with our spiritual freedom. We have seen today from your word that when you came, Jesus, and you proclaimed the kingdom of God, you brought good news to the poor, you healed, you opened blind eyes, you made the mute talk, all as a foretaste of what your kingdom in heaven will be like, a place of shalom. And so we partner with you, God, against injustice today. We ask you to show us how we can be more involved, and that we would not leave here and do nothing, because that would be sin, but rather we would increase our commitment, we would realign our priorities, we would put our money where our mouth is, Our hearts would get serious about this issue, whether it's at our homes, our schools, our street corners, or around the world. That we would take action, and that we would be your people shining a bright light together, as IJM is around the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and that the name of Jesus would be lifted high, so that people everywhere would have a relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen. Now what I want to do today as part of our...